Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. On the show this week, the individual who has had the single largest impact on my personal health uh, in recent years. And he's going to talk about the connection between spirituality and health. Strauss Delnick is coming up. First, uh, one piece of business, and then your calls, and then we'll get to Strauss. Uh, the business is a cool new feature on the 10% Happier app. You can now set up a shortcut via Siri, if you've got, if you're using an Apple device, where you can just tell your phone or your HomePod that you want to play a specific meditation, like the meditation of the day or meditation to help you sleep, and it will just pop right up. It's awesome. It's great use of AI before the robots take over and kill all of us. Um, all right, let's get to your phone calls. Here's uh, number one. Hey, Dan, this is Jay in Charlotte, North Carolina. My question is related to comments you've made in the past about um, healthy levels of anxiety and how we achieve uh, a high level of success at work. Um, in light of our practice, um, when you start learning about not clinging words like passionlessness and renunciation, um, it just seems that any level of anxiety or stress related to uh, achievement at work is a form of suffering. And uh, I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Thank you. Bye-bye. Here's my take on that. It's a great question. I spent a lot of time ruminating on this. My take is that a certain amount of stress makes sense. A certain amount of suffering is is just part of the deal when you're uh, trying to do something great or important or just to feed your family. But we tend to make that worse than it needs to be. And mindfulness is a great way to have an inner telescope that tells you, that gives you a sense of when you've crossed the line between uh, useless rumination or rather when you've, when you've crossed into useless, rumina useless rumination from uh, a territory that I often like to refer to as constructive anguish. So there's a certain amount of constructive anguish out there, but you got to know when, when it doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, and Joseph Goldstein, the eminent meditation teacher, often uh, encourages people to use a little mantra of, is this useful? So, you know, on the 97th time you're worrying about something related to work, maybe just ask yourself, is this useful? Have I, have I played out the string on this particular anxiety loop? Do I, you know, I, I, I've thought about it enough. I have a plan. Uh, here's where we are. Uh, now I'm going to uh, bring my attention to something else. Maybe it's my child. Maybe it's the food I'm eating. Maybe it's my spouse. And I think, I think in, in many ways I've found, in my experience, having a mechanism, an inner mechanism to, to notice when I've taken the stress too far has really boosted my resiliency and my focus and my ability to, you know, be, uh, be right there for people I want to be there for. So, yeah, it's a huge issue. I don't think there's some silver bullet. I don't think there's some way to magically know when, you know, when you've crossed the line between good stress and bad stress. But I think meditation is a really good way to, to have a sense of when you've when you've done that. And as it pertains to clinging, you know, I, I, the concept I really like is is this idea of non non attachment to results to so just to know as you're working really hard on something. And I'm not going to say I'm an ace at this, but I, I, I do my best. If you're working really hard at something. 
it makes a, uh, a lot of sense to invest your time and energy and intellect I- into a project. But the success is really not in your hands. You can't control all the variables in a universe that is controlled by that is is um, characterized by entropy and impermanence. There are so many exogenous factors that can swoop in and and topple or amplify whatever uh, plan you're working on. So I think to that's where not being unattached to the results starts to make sense. So do your best at whatever you're working on, but just know that uh, you're not the, for better or worse, the king or queen of the universe. All right, those are my thoughts on, on that question, but super important. Um, here's number two. Hey, Dan, this is Luke from Philly. Uh, I really love what you're doing and appreciate uh, all the hard work that you put in. Um, I do a lot of exercise, specifically running, and I think you've touched on this before, that exercise isn't necessarily meditation or can't really substitute for it, but I was wondering if you had any tips on how to be more mindful during it. Uh, Sometimes I notice I get very lost in thoughts. And yeah, if you have any tips to make it a bit more mindful experience, that'd be great. Thanks. As it happens, I do. My new producer, the new producer of this show, Ryan Kessler, is clearly a genius because he he chose this voicemail, which will will tee up our guest this week perfectly. But uh, to your question, my friend, Yes, you can run mindfully. I've noticed that it's harder, but uh, it's definitely worth doing. So it involves, in my view, taking out the earbuds and not um, listening to uh, Linkin Park or whatever it is you listen to when you're running. By the way, I don't listen to or endorse Linkin Park. It just came to my head. I don't know where it came into, into my head or why it came into my head. Anyway, you're not listening to music. You are... Uh, running, I would do a noting practice. I have done in my in my uh, experiences mindfully running a noting practice. So you're running and you're just making soft mental notes of whatever it is is most salient, whatever is most salient in your experience at that moment. So it might be the feeling of uh, pressure from your heat feet hitting the ground. It might be a sense of movement in your legs. It might be a coolness of wind hitting your face. It might be noticing you've become distracted and, and just making a soft note of thinking, thinking. So you'd be running along thinking pressure, pressure, hearing, hearing, thinking, thinking, seeing, seeing. And then you're going to get distracted a million times and you just start again. And so it's not, not complicated, but it will bring you in in a truly meditative way to the experience of running and so, yeah, I, I've done it before. I do it when I'm on when I exercise on, when I'm on meditation retreat, and I don't want to totally cheat by listening to to Brett Eldridge or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm just mentioning Brett because he was on the show recently. Then, then I will do a noting practice when I'm running, and it is I've noticed harder uh, because when you're listening to music, you get this sort of uh, adrenaline uh, that you you won't. At least I haven't gotten from just doing a, a noting practice. But it is, uh, in my view, that's truly a way to make running uh, meditative. So go for it. Give it a shot. Don't listen to Linkin Park. I'm kidding. Ish. All right. Our our, uh, our guest this week is Strauss Zelnick, who is a personal friend. I'm going to warn you up front. He is a personal friend, as uh, sometimes happens on the show. Um, before we get into it, I want to talk a little bit about this. Uh, I've mentioned it before. We did this survey with podcast listeners, and I was, and I, I've said this before, but I, I think it's worth repeating, bowled over by the 
magnitude of the response. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people took time to fill out the survey. I am incredibly grateful to people who did that because it's been super useful. We, we, you're going to start seeing over the next uh, months and coming year some real changes to the show in part because of the survey we did, but also because of the aforementioned Ryan Kessler. We have a new producer. So there's going to be there are going to be some changes, and I think they're going to be really great. And one of the things people told us is, is that we really like to stay within the bounds of uh, meditation, mindfulness, Buddhism, psychology. People weren't so interested in doing – getting you know fitness advice from me, which is probably wise because um, if you take a look at me in person, I'm, I'm – yeah, anyway, uh, you, you didn't want to have fitness guests on because there are plenty of other podcasts uh, that do that. So basically what, where we've arrived is that we're going to do – so nine out of ten podcasts will be right in the wheelhouse that that uh, our listeners are telling us they want to be in. But one out of ten, maybe one out of 20, it's going to be dealer's choice. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And this one falls in that category. Uh, Strauss is not uh, some lifelong uh, meditation practitioner. Although, as you're going to hear, he does a better job, in my view, of talking about the connection between a spiritual practice and, a, and an exercise practice than most. But I, I'm, I'm bringing him on because he's had a huge impact on me. He is 61 years old and jacked. I mean, just ripped. And also the CEO of one of the largest uh, video game companies on earth. Uh, these guys, his Take Two Entertainment owns uh, Grand Theft Auto, so one of the biggest video game franchises there is. Um, he's been in the entertainment industry, was a, a, was a movie mogul, a music mogul, and is now in the video game industry, and takes the time to be incredibly fit with a busy professional life, with a huge mentoring practice that we're going to talk about. He's incredibly generous with his time. Uh, to people who need and want it, uh, with uh, a family of three beautiful children and a wife, a beautiful wife. So he's he's a guy who's in the world, but taking the time to be engaged in uh, in these in this kind of physical upkeep upkeep in a way that I have found as his friend incredibly inspiring, and has really changed the way I approach uh, my physical fitness. So. Uh, give him a chance. I think you're going to find a lot here of value, um, even though it may fall slightly outside the center of the bullseye for, for what listeners have been looking for. Uh, but I promise if you give this a chance, you're going to like it. So here's Strauss Zelnick. Nice it's to see nice you. nice to be here this morning. We're going to talk all about the book and physical fitness and the fact that what a huge impact you've had on my physical fitness and my attitudes about physical fitness. But I want to talk a little bit about sort of your interior journey because it's been – I mean, everything's great for you now. The pictures are awesome uh, of you and how ripped you are, and you've got this big job at Take Two, and and you've got a another company, ZMC, where you invest in media companies. Um, but you've had some ups and downs in your life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, like all of us, I've had plenty of ups and downs. I had a pretty tough childhood. Um, although I don't, you want one wants to be careful about um, blaming subsequent ups and downs on your background. Um, but I had a I had a hard childhood, and I sort of I think one of the reasons that life has unfolded for me the way that it has is that I was working really hard to overcome the challenges of my childhood, like well, many of us. Can you tell us a little bit. I about lost that? my uh, mother when I was uh, quite young. My parents were divorced when I was young. Went to live with uh, another family, my aunt and uncle, and uh, so I had a lot of upset 
before I was 10 years old, as did my siblings. And uh, that, that, that created some sense of motivation and not necessarily all good motivation to create a, a perfect picture of life. So you, you, you can trace your ambition in some way back to that, that feeling of rupture. I, I think I was probably born with some sense of ambition and yes – I think I can trace more of it, maybe the negative parts of the drive to the rupture, maybe the positive parts of the drive uh, to you know, something that was inherent. You were, and still are, but, but in particular what I know about your younger days, really ambitious and successfully so. Yeah, and I think that's right. And I think uh, I spent a lot of time coaching and mentoring people now. I don't think there's anything wrong with ambition. To the contrary, I think knowing what you want is is probably the factor most highly correlated with getting what you want. And so ambition is a good thing. Um, and I think I was also accused of being impatient. Uh, and my view is that impatience in action is probably a good thing. Impatience with regard to outcomes, not so much a good thing. And when I was younger, maybe I confused the two more than I do now. Can you break that down? I think being ambitious is great, and I think um, you know. I think people who are uh, young being told, "Well, wait, you know, your turn will come," uh, is it's frustrating. It was frustrating when I was young, and I would find it equally frustrating now. I think, though, understanding what we can and can't control is pretty powerful in life. And when you're starting from nowhere, and I started from nowhere, the way you did. Um, with nothing, no connections, uh, you have to you have to work really hard to begin to create traction. There's nothing wrong with having great ambition, and if you don't work hard, nothing will come from it. Perhaps I would have benefited from being a little more patient in the outcomes, understanding that no matter how hard I worked, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how well things went, certain things are just going to take time. So, since we're talking about your career, I may be worth. You were the youngest studio chief? I'm not sure. I'd so, First of all, dining out on being the youngest anything when you're old is is horrifying to me. But <laughs> I don't know if that's true in any case. But I was 32 when I became president and chief operating officer of 20th Century Fox. A pretty, pretty big job. I'm 47. I would be stressed out to have that job now. Uh, you know, stress is not has never really been my issue. Uh, plenty of concerns. The stress is actually not one of them. They also say there's good stress and bad stress. When when you feel like you're in control of a situation, um, you experience stress very differently than when you feel you're not in control of a situation. Did you feel like you were in control when you took over that job? Uh, there were days I did and many days I did not. And I, after all, a great title notwithstanding, I was not the most senior guy in the organization. I reported to the chairman of 20th Century Fox, and he reported to the CEO of Fox, Inc. How did that job go for you? Ultimately, it went great. It was hard at first uh, because I I showed up. Uh, I've been president of the largest ind independent uh, film company, and so I, I was pretty convinced I had it all sorted out, and I knew it needed to be done. What I failed to understand was that while I saw the motion picture business as one business, um, the there was an enormous divide between the independent motion picture business, which is where I was uh, well-known, respected, and successful as president of the largest company, and the major motion picture business, where I had no reputation and my only experience had been as a you know relatively junior executive at Columbia Pictures previously. 
So I, I show up in California, um, you know, thinking I have it all figured out. And, and Fox was a turnaround. Uh, and I did have a plan. Oh, and incidentally, I wasn't really wrong about what needed to be done. You know, I, that, well, the point was not that I was wrong. What I failed to pay attention to was how to go about it. And uh, I, I, I spent a little too much time talking and not enough time listening. Uh, and that, that, as it turns out, slowed down my progress <laughs> in actually getting anything done. The good news is I, I learn, and I learn from my mistakes. Um, and while I entered poorly, I was able, with um, the help and support of ultimately my colleagues and my boss, um, to turn it around, and I did have a successful run there. My three-year-old's really into animals these days, and we talk a lot about hippos with big mouths and tiny ears, and I'm I'm guilty of yeah, I was being a hippo. A hippo. Yeah. <laughs> I was a hippo. Yeah. So uh, then you went on to get into the music industry from there? Actually, I left – Fox to do my first startup in the video game business. It was 1993, and I went to Silicon Valley, which was an unusual thing to do then. And I had the view that video games would be the next huge entertainment business and that the economics of the video game business would be a lot more uh, beneficial than the economics of what was a very mature and today is an even more mature motion picture business. You have to pay actors. Uh, well, not just that. There are many attributes of the motion picture business that make it a challenging asset class and did then. And I, I do tend to see things as they are. Uh, and I was actually right about that. It took much, much longer for the business to develop than I'd expected. And uh, so it was very early days. Uh, but as it turns out, I called it right that the business in those days was was probably uh, 1993. I don't know, under a hundred million dollar business. Today, it's a hundred and forty billion dollar worldwide industry, um, much larger than the motion picture business or the music business. Um, but nonetheless, you got into mu- how, how did that transition happen from your first foray into video games into going into music? So were you right too early? Uh, I, I, I'm. I may have been right too early. I certainly was right too early for my own taste. I missed running a big business. I don't think I'd gotten that out of my system yet. And I was recruited by BMG, which was another turnaround. It was five out of six of the music companies. It was the peak of the music business. So there's a lot of excitement about it. This was 1995. And uh, they recruited me. And um, Crystal Dynamics was on a very good footing at that point. And there was um, great leadership to step into my role. So even though it was only a couple of years later, I felt comfortable moving on. I was still a very large shareholder. And I moved to BMG where I started, among other things, a video game business, mm. BMG Interactive. Uh, and uh, we as a team turned around the music business and um, we had record years for the company in terms of uh, revenue, profits, market share, and Grammy wins. Um, by the time I left, six years later, we were number two in the business. Okay, so resume, we've only done part of it, but just looking at your resume, you had gone to Harvard Law School, you went on, you had all these B, uh, a friend of mine calls them BBJs, big, big jobs, and a beautiful wife who is a friend of mine and Bianca's and wonderful children. Uh, but it was there was some inner sort of health and spiritual turmoil. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it was more than a little. I, you know, I, I think, I was anxious all the time. You know, I, I think I prided myself on being the calmest guy in the entertainment business. Um, and I certainly did come across that way. Very little could rattle me. And if you're doing turnarounds all the time, you have to be in, in that position. But my interior life was, was really spiky. And I took everything personally. Um, and it was all about me. So any interaction was about me. How, how did I come across? How did I look? 
how did I do? You know, did I did I do that correctly or incorrectly? And whatever uh, whatever I did well was just a prelude to the next challenge. And whatever I did badly, you know, that was an opportunity to really beat myself up. And uh, I, I sort of describe myself as, and as was, I think carrying you know my childhood along with me. And I was I was like a guy uh, walking up a, a hill with a backpack full of rocks. You know, and if a rock happened to fall out, I'd I'd stop and pick up another one. And if I came across you, I'd grab your rocks too. <laughs> when I got to the top of the hill, the only thing I experienced was there was another hill in front of me. So if if I had a win, and I I'm, I had a lot of stuff that went really well, uh, both personally and professionally, you know, I would experience it as sort of as as very as momentary. Um, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to ever take credit for it. Not truly. I mean, I might come across as someone who took credit for it, which isn't a very appealing attribute. And I hope I don't come across that way now. But I didn't really inside. It's sort of the worst of both worlds. You know, yeah. I look. I look like I was super proud of myself, but I didn't feel at all that way. Today, I hope that you know, I, I come across with some measure of humility, and and I can take at least a small amount of pride in how things have gone. How did it manifest itself, this anxiety? Well, I think that, you know, ultimately the way it manifested itself is I wasn't, I wasn't incredibly happy day to day. I wasn't unhappy. I, I was really grateful for the life I had. I've never failed to be grateful every day for the opportunities that I've had, uh, for the things that have come my way. Um, so I had gratitude, but I didn't have a lot of basic happiness. And I think I, I sort of hid that behind, you know, enthusiasm. You know, I, I always was enthusiastic and upbeat. Uh, but inside, you know, wasn't, I wasn't very happy. And uh, I would mitigate that by, you know, working out hard um, or, you know, taking on ridiculous challenges at work. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons I did turnarounds because they were just so hard. Uh, you know, it wasn't enough that I would do a good job running a business. I had to turn around an impossible, an impossible situation. And then I drank. I didn't, you know, I didn't drink endless quantities, but I drank every night. And was it just drinking? Uh, yeah, it was just drinking. Mostly. Mostly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair <laughs> yeah I have my moments. Right. And how bad did that get? Well, it never got bad. It never got bad in terms of quantity. You know, I was always in my own bed at night, and I always got up early in the morning to go to the gym. But, you know, it was not optional. I was going to come home and have a couple of big drinks every night. And then didn't appeal to my wife. Uh, among other things, um, but it, it it was the point is I couldn't take it or leave it. Uh, the process of stopping was that hard, or was it just like a, you know, I got to stop, so let's just do this. No, it was really it, <laughs> well. It was hard in that uh, I I I I would stop for a while, and then I'd find a reason to continue, and um, and again because I I didn't have any um, apparent issues. You know, I I was encouraged by people around me. Oh, come on, you know, have a drink with me. Um, which one is? Uh, until finally, I got to the point of saying, "Look, I I don't want to be this person. I don't want to define myself this way. I, I'm I I want to define myself differently." Or said another way, you know, am I going to be you know an athlete and a person at my very best, or am I going to be a drinker? And I decided I, I decided I couldn't do all of those together. You talk about you've talked about athletics a couple times. We're here ostensibly because of your new book, which is about the fact that we can all be athletes. Although, really, just 
a quarter of the book, but yeah. Yes, yeah, right. right, absolutely. Yeah. Or we, and the, the rest of the time we can treat ourselves like athletes in important ways and, and even mental athletes right? Um, for sure. And we'll break that down in a second. But you were not always – I mean you're pretty jacked right now, but as I understand it, you were not always this way. No, I, I, I'm uh, occasionally uh, people – I get accused of being um, – having great genetics, you know, and or being a natural athlete, which I, you know, I find amusing in the extreme. Um, you know, great genetics. I come from a long line of insurance executives and rabbis. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no, no professional athletes among them, near as I can tell. Um, and natural athlete, you know, I didn't really do uh, sports when I was a kid. I was a student, and I loved being a student. And I didn't really love being active. And I was skinny, so it wasn't like I... I wasn't carrying out extra extra weight. I didn't have any outside um, imperative to lose weight. To the contrary, I couldn't really keep weight on. So I I did lift weights when I was a teenager just because I was so skinny. It didn't seem to have much of an impact. I'm sure I wasn't doing it correctly. I know I wasn't doing it correctly. And I ran um, because I, I was light so I could run. I played some squash, not particularly well, which I've now picked up again. Uh, but that was it. I was primarily a student. How'd you end up getting so into it? Because you are so I mean, you work out sometimes twice a day now. Well, I you know I think it was uh, it was a it was a process of um, letting go of fear and um, embracing something that could be fun that I'd never thought would be fun. So I think one of the reasons that I wasn't so into sports is that I was. Um, I wasn't a natural athlete. I wasn't gifted. And uh, I thought I looked goofy. And if I did things that, um, you know, I was good at, like studying or working later, um, I wouldn't look goofy. You know, I didn't look goofy studying. I was good at it. And I certainly didn't look goofy working, at least not most of the time, because that went pretty well. But athletics, you know, I was afraid of how I was going to come across. And, um, and as I get more healthy, spiritually healthy and emotionally healthy, I let go of the fear. It's not like I looked better, <laughs> you understand, at least not initially. I just let go of the fear. And um, that, was, that was a process and took, you know, took a long time. That process took a long time. So as I let go of the fear, I suddenly thought, wow, this is, this is fun. This is fun. And I embraced my, uh, I embraced my uh, inner goofiness. Um, you know, I... <laughs> I remember when I started running um, a few years ago. I picked up running because I, I, I really was such a bad runner uh, that I thought, well, this is standing in the way of the rest of the sports I'm doing, and and I only I don't like running much. Um, so I I hired a running coach, and I went out with our our morning fitness crew to run, and one of my buddies said, "You actually look like a wounded animal," <laughs> <laughs> and I and I did, and you know what? I, I was okay. I found it funny too. Um, but when I was a teenager, I wouldn't have found that funny. Right. Let's let's talk about the book, um, and then I'll, I'll get to the million other sort of questions that are swirling around in my head. In the book, you sort of you have there are four pillars to uh, your plan for how we can all you know sort of get ourselves together. Let's just kind of break those down, and then I'll ask you a bunch of questions based on that. So, what's the what's the first pillar? Well, the, before we get into the pillars, the, the starting point is what are you trying to achieve? Yeah. Um, because in, if you don't know what you want, there's absolutely no point in pursuing anything in life, in my opinion. And the book's called Becoming Ageless. Um, but 
none of us is ageless. We're all aging, of course. And the book does not imply you're going to live forever. To the contrary, in fact, being fit probably doesn't even extend your lifespan. The implication in the book is let's not define ourselves through the the lens of age. You know, I, I spent a long time being young. We talked about this earlier and being told you're too young to do a long list of things. Um, well, as it turns out, that wasn't true, actually. And, you know, it, 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 it seemed very quickly to switch to now you're too old to do too many things. And I can't tell you how often people say to me, well, you know, aren't you slowing down? You know, when are you thinking about retiring? Um, that's not, you know, that is not based on the fact that I'm bent over and hobbling around and coughing because I'm not. That's based on the fact that I'm 61. Um, and people have a point of view about what it means when you're 61. Uh, so the starting point is you don't have to define yourself through that lens. And then the book dives in and says, and here's a program that's going to keep you looking as good as you can, feeling as good as you can, um, being mentally clear, and living your best life at any age. And the four pillars of that are taking care of your health, making sure you go to the doctor, having some kind of exercise program. I'm pretty flexible about what that looks like. Um, pursuing a healthy diet, not not a crazy diet, but a healthy diet, and having an in, in inner spiritual life, which I know is the thing that's most important to you, Dan, as we talked this morning. Uh, and I think it's a crucial element in, in being your best self. So let's break those down one by one. The first one, taking care of your health. Uh, first of all, I, I, you've heard me say this before, and I probably have already said it in this conversation, that just seeing you, I remember being at your 60th birthday and thinking, oh, my God. This, and we'd worked out together a million times before, but somehow on your 60th birthday, it really hit me of how fit you are. And, and I'm thinking, all right, this guy's a bunch of years older than me, but I can up my game even now, even in my late 40s, I can be the best shape of my life. And that I found to be a really, for lack of a less trite word, inspiring thing. Uh, so the four things that I've, and I've been pursuing these subsequent to our many, many conversations about it, one of them is like, Go see the doctor. Right. Which is – we shouldn't have to tell people this, but people don't do it. That's exactly right. And there are certain screenings that will detect illnesses that otherwise are going to kill you. They're completely curable. So if if you don't have a colorectal screening, you run the risk of developing cancer that is completely curable if appropriately detected. Um, if you're a woman, you should be having mammograms regularly uh, for the same reason. That most breast cancers can be effectively treated, not all, sadly, but most, if detected early. Uh, how many people do you know who say, well, I never go to the doctor? Yeah, I know I should, but I never go to the doctor. Well, that's just not going to lead to good things. So you should get an annual checkup. You should go to your dentist and get a cleaning every six months. Uh, and you should do what the doctor and the dentist says. Second pillar the second pillar is some form of exercise. And we talk a lot about that in the book because there's, you know, a picture of me with my shirt off and exercise is so important to me. Um, but the book really isn't a, you know, washboard abs in three weeks kind of book. Um, you can you can buy a book like that. It's not going to help you because it, it doesn't work. It's great for marketing, but it doesn't work. But, you know, my advice is start moving if you don't move. And if you start moving and if you're gentle with yourself and if you pursue a very gentle induction program, you can slowly add fitness to your regime. And then you can decide just how intense you want that 
to be. In my case, I really enjoy it. Uh, I, I want to look my best. It may not be my finest attribute, but I do. Uh, and, I, and I love training with my friends and I love sports. Um, that may not be to everyone's liking. But to, to ask people, you know, as I do, can you go take a walk for half an hour, three times a week? Ultimately, this isn't how you start. And can you do some weight-bearing exercise maybe twice a week for half an hour? If you just do that, uh, which is not much, and less than our government recommends, incidentally, uh, that will get you in, in a very good place uh, compared to being sedentary. Now, if you do what our government recommends, which is get about five hours of exercise a week, that's a lot for most people, um, you, you really have an opportunity to live like a middle-aged person until you're no longer alive, uh, which to me is, you know, sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah, Definitely. If we just get back to you, you said that it's maybe it's not your finest attribute to care, want to look your best. Maybe it's not my finest attribute either, but I feel that way, and I'm constantly. I mean, I uh, I I know in my case it's kind of an unhealthy dialogue about the fact that I have a little bit of a belly, even though I'm <laughs> overall skinny. But yeah, I I've, the fact that the picture of you looking jacked in 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 the book, I find that inspirational and annoying. <laughs> well. Um- my uh, my wife's more on the just finds an annoying side. Uh, <laughs> One of the things I love about Wendy. <laughs> so I look. I it depends on the person. Most of most of the people you see in the gym, whether they will admit it or not, are there partially because they want to look good. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a healthy amount of vanity. An unhealthy amount probably is debilitating, and those those inner dialogues can be destructive. And I too engage in them. Or said another way, I don't know too many people who are as intense about fitness as I am who don't have body dysmorphia of some sort or another. Right. How do you keep that in check? Uh, probably don't, frankly. I mean, I think I don't think that's my my finest attribute. But it, but again, it's really typical of people who train a lot. And uh, so and again, and no one talks about it. No one wants to talk about it, particularly men. It's funny because I have a nutritionist right now. I went, as you know, uh, I stopped eating animal products. I don't know when this is going and to sugar and sugar. Yeah. So the sugar. You're my, you're my idol because <laughs> <laughs> you. We should say we'll get to this in the eating uh, part soon. Uh, you you do eat a, a, a little bit of sugar, and that's I think comforting to people. Um, so sugar was about a year ago, and about a half year ago, I stopped eating animal products, and I did it incorrectly, and really had some negative health ramifications. And I found this nutritionist who was recommended to me by a friend who's extremely fit and uh, also a vegan. And this guy's a vegan bodybuilder, um, and I really like him. And he is very interesting in that he will will talk about. He'll say, you know, how do you feel you're looking right now? And I'll always give him my spiel about I don't like the belly, and he and he'll say, do you think this is unhealthy or do you think it's motivating? Because people in my line of work and his line of work is he's a bodybuilder, fall into body dysmorphia and it becomes unhealthy. And he's like, I just want to put a I want to flag that for you because you need to keep an eye on that. That's right. Which I find laudable because, as you said, most people, especially guys, are not talking about this. That's right. It's it's really just not discussed. Women talk about it all the time. Men don't. So the, you don't want to hold yourself up as a, a model for keeping this in check. But I, what I would recommend or what I try to do in myself is mindfulness. Just if you have some – visibility into your own mental processes and you see that you're just stuck in a loop of self-recrimination about whatever physical attribute it is you're perseverating over, then you might just notice, oh, this is happening. 
uh, maybe I can focus on something else. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. And and obviously have other things in your life. Uh, if you find that – I will run into people who will go to extremes on all four pillars that are in the book. Um, you know, Way too much exercise, way too much focus on diet. Um, I'm not sure there's way too much focus on spirituality, but I suppose – We know I, there can be. Absolutely. There can be. I mean yeah. there are people who you know – you still have to get up and go to work. Yes. Uh, after all, um, and even way too much focus on health. You know, you're spending all day long, you know, scouring the internet and you know, getting tests. And yeah, mitochondria so, for sure. Yeah. So there, are, I think you can overdo absolutely anything. And the question is, as you said, can you be mindful and, and then make your own choice about you know where you fall? One of the choices I made is I try really hard not to step on a scale. I found out. And I, this was recommended to me uh, by Sean Perrine, to, to whom the book is dedicated, unfortunately passed away young of lung cancer, uh, who was editor-in-chief of Muscle and Fitness. The guy was in incredible shape at the age of 50. And uh, he said, I never weigh myself because what's the point? I, all I have to do is look in the mirror and see how I'm doing. And I thought, yeah, that's probably the right thing. And I, I would weigh myself and I had in my mind to target weight. And if I exceeded it, I'd feel bad about myself without regard to how I looked or felt or had, had performed that day. And it, and the worst part is if I were at or under the weight, then I, I, I think I gave myself permission to eat things that I really shouldn't eat. Right. So I'm not sure there's a good result either way. And I've tried, therefore, to stay off the scale. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Okay, so we've talked about sort of body dysmorphism, but do you do you you, you work out a ton, and you've you've got two huge jobs. Not notwithstanding the fact you're also a husband and a father of three beautiful children. Uh, so you're, you're the CEO of Take-Two Interactive. Also, is it CEO of ZMC or chairman? ZMC doesn't have titles, so okay. I'm, I'm a partner. You're the name on Z is Zelnick Media. <laughs> what, what is it again? Zelnick Media Capital. Okay. Yeah. So you're investing in media companies. So you've got these two huge jobs, and you work out minimum six days a week, some of those days twice. So do you think there's compuls- there's any compulsion in that? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think – 
I, I, I'm loath to use a word because it's not a very pretty word. But so there's a thin line between motivation and compulsion. And there's a, an, another thin line between, you know, performance and compulsion, I suppose. Um, you know, when we work really, really hard and you didn't find yourself in this career position without working really hard, uh, without working in a way that most people would find unimaginable. And I, I work hard, too. Um, and um, is that compulsion or is that ambition or is that just plain appropriate? So there we have to be, as you said earlier, you know, we have to be mindful of all of these things. Um, but does does this amount of exercise feel compulsive to me? No, it doesn't feel compulsive to me because it's my recreation and it's my release. Yeah, and as you've said to me before, there are other forms of recreation you might enjoy, but you just don't do them because you're making time for this. Like you don't watch a lot of TV or movies. That's right, I don't. And uh, that's I have nothing against them, by the way. It's not a prescription uh, not to watch television or movies. To the contrary, and and I make television shows, so I definitely want you to watch them. <laughs> but but I, I you have to choose, and I think you can have three or four priorities in your life. And my priorities are my family and my friends, my work, my fitness, and the charitable work and mentoring and coaching. Those are my four. And it's not that I don't watch television ever. I do uh, sometimes with my wife. That's important to her. And I love movies, although I don't see as many as I'd like. But it's just not on the top list of priorities. It can't be. And and I mean, I would add to the list, I mean, mindfulness is really important. I think you stated quite beautifully there's a thin line between motivation and compulsion. I'm riding that line all the time in lots of areas in my life, including fitness. And I, I think I cross it at times. I think there's no question that so I So do I. Yeah, okay. So we're, <laughs> and I've we're, said that to you. Yes. Yeah. So we're both open about that. And I think mindfulness is important, but also something that both of us have is strong vocal wives. Yes. And really good friends in your life. And I would throw in, for those who are interested, also psychotherapy. Right. These are all really good ways to know how you're doing in writing that line. It's okay. We're going to mess up. But you don't want to firmly be in the land of compulsion forever. That's right. And I, you know, I think the, the phrase I use most commonly, both personally and professionally, is what am I missing? And I, I want to know the answer. I'm actually interested in the answer to that question. It isn't rhetorical. And um, and I, you're right. I'm blessed that I have, uh, have a lot of people around me who are you know, strongly opined uh, and, and vocal and uh, not just my wife. And yes, also a therapist and also coaches and friends uh, and colleagues. You know, I surround myself at work with people who are challenging, difficult, tough, and opinionated. Uh, we're completely allergic to flattery and, um, and people who say yes when they really mean no. Uh, and I, I just don't have people like that around me. So let's move on now to the third pillar, which is another area where people can get compulsive, myself included. It's just food. Right. So what's your prescription in the book? Well, the the prescription is pretty straightforward, which is Dr. Peter Atiyah, who's the leading or one of the leading researchers in nutrition and longevity, puts it simply. There are three things you probably shouldn't put in your body at all. Alcohol, sugar, added sugar, and refined carbohydrates. And uh, he said, now that said, I've, I've eaten with Peter, and Peter will have a glass of wine with dinner. Uh, he'll eat dessert, although you might have to twist his arm a little bit, and he, he'll eat some refined carbohydrates. But the fact remains those three things really aren't good for you. 
Uh, and there's just no argument that they're good for you. And I eat you know, some sugar too, and I eat some refined carbohydrates. But if you took as a guide – Just to define refined carbs would be would like be pasta and bread. Pasta and bread, for example. Manuf- French fries, you know, manufactured food that are, that are carbs, um, processed food because it creates uh, an, a higher insulin response and causes you to store fat. It's bad for you. Uh, so you should be eating whole carbohydrates, and th- that is rice. an important part of any diet. Rice, rice whole grains, if Barrow. you wish. I don't eat a lot of grains, uh, but whole grains, um, potatoes, yams, and the like. Uh, you do need carbohydrates in your diet. It is, you know, there's a whole lot of talk about ketogenic diets, and you can lose weight very quickly if you remove carbohydrates from your diet. But you can also lose weight by removing any one food group from your diet. You know, remove all the fat from your diet, keep it high carb, you'll lose weight as well. Um, I would argue that any diet that doesn't include fats, proteins, and carbohydrates is not a healthy diet. So the prescription really is, you know, don't um, don't put added sugar to the extent that you can avoid it into your diet. And you can find added sugar in a lot of places, whether it's ketchup, fruit juice, soda, or the like. Secondly, limit strictly refined carbohydrates, the ones we discussed. And to make it easier, anything that you find in a bag or in a box. And strictly limit to the extent that you're able to alcohol because it's a toxin and it's not good for you. The, the book goes into much more detail. It has recipes that are really easy to cook that are healthy. Uh, but those are the basic, the, the basic concepts. I want to acknowledge something because, um, I, again, I, I suspect there are some people going to be listening to us and thinking, God, these guys are annoying because they're so disciplined. And, um, you know, I, and yes, you pointed out that I don't eat uh, sugar – I do eat a little bit of refined carbs. I don't drink alcohol. But I struggled mightily to get to this point. Giving up sugar was because it was becoming an addiction, and I have many. And I realized that I had this running, very boring, destructive dialogue in my head of, am I going to have dessert tonight? What am I going to have? Blah, 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 all day long. And then I would eat so much. I couldn't have a cookie. I would have 17 cookies, and then I would feel awful the next day. So about a year ago, I just said I can't uh, – I was inspired by my friend and a woman who's been on the show a bunch of times, Gretchen Rubin, who's just who, – she went through a similar thing and she just went cold turkey. Something I thought I could never do, but on the 1,000th time that I woke up feeling like crap from overeating sugar and was in a bad mood all day, I just said, OK, that I'm done. And you know, I've, uh, I went through a similar struggle around uh, animal products because I just couldn't abide eating them anymore. But but I don't want to pretend that this is easy. This is foods. Food issues are really tough. Food issues are hard because with regard to alcohol, you can just say I'm not drinking alcohol. Period. But with regard to food, you know, we're still eating. We have yeah. to eat, and so you. It's it's very difficult. And you know, I, I put myself in that category too. Sugar and refined carbohydrates are bad for you. I just said it, and yet I eat dessert. Now I try not to eat endless quantities, uh, and I and I'm not obsessing about sweets all day long, thankfully. Um, but I'm not prepared yet to give it up. That That isn't by way of saying, and therefore it's healthy. It, it isn't healthy. But I'm, one makes a choice about how you want to live. And not we can't all be perfect all the time. So it takes discipline to do what you do. And it takes some discipline for me to maintain the diet that I'm on, even though it's reasonably flexible diet. 
at this it, point. Interestingly, it would actually take more discipline for me to do what you do than to do what I'm doing. Right. So it's easier for me to do abstinence rather than moderation. Well, you know yourself yeah. this way, and you, you're wired that way. And certainly with regard to alcohol, I find abstinence is the only correct approach for me. Um, but with regard to food, I'm, I'm not there yet. Maybe I should be there, or maybe I will get there over time. Um, I, I think I just I, I want to encourage people to see themselves as they are. And you see yourself for who you are, and you make an appropriate choice for yourself that leads you to better health and more happiness. Actually, um, I think I see myself who, for who I am, and I'm tailoring my approach to that. And for other people, this isn't worthwhile at all, although they're probably not listening to us today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me just get into alcohol for a second because I quit not because I had a problem with alcohol but because I just developed an allergy to it and it just makes me feel awful. So I just stopped. I, I quit other stuff like cocaine because I was uh, I was heading in a – I was giving me panic attacks, which are inconvenient if you're in the business of talking <laughs> on television. Um but on alcohol, I thought the received wisdom was, you know, this is why the French are so healthy because they have a glass of wine a day. Didn't some doctors recommend this stuff? But here you are saying, no, no, actually, no alcohol is good for you. Well, interestingly, you know, there were also, as I recall, um, before my time, but there were doctors recommending methyl cigarettes in the 1950s because <laughs> they soothed your throat and said so, or promoted certain brands. Um, there's recent research that just came out within the last couple of weeks that I wasn't surprised in the least by. There was a massive uh, study. Uh, hundreds of thousands of, of uh, people were in the study, which basically said any amount of alcohol is not good for you. It's, m my point is not, uh, therefore, everyone should abstain, though, in the same way that any amount of added sugar probably isn't good for you, and yet I have dessert. You just should be mindful of it and not kid yourself about what, what's going on. Alcohol is a toxin. In the fullness of time, I'm certain it's going to be proven to be bad for you, even in small quantities. Um, but if you want to have some some alcohol, then I don't think there's anything wrong with it in the fullness of time. Uh, if you're moderate in any number of other ways, if you're immoderate, there's a whole lot wrong with it. So let's talk about the fourth pillar, which is something that doesn't show up in fitness books that often. Which is spirituality and and uh, and something I know that is near and dear to your heart uh, and, and, and the reason we're chatting today. Uh, and this was a, a part of my life that really only came into focus when, when I stopped drinking, um, which is, you know, I think I needed something else to supply the relief that alcohol had given me from all that anxiety and stress and spikiness. Uh, and I found it in, in developing a spiritual life. And, and what, I, what I've observed is that it can take any number of different forms. For some people, it's meditation. It is for you. For other people, it's traditional religion, you know, going to church uh, or mosque or synagogue regularly and participating in organized religion. And for me, um, it's a little it, – it's, it's, it's not those things, although it has characteristics of all of them. It's morning prayer. And it's uh, – you know, it's secular. Uh, it's not religious. Um, secular in mean, meaning that you're not praying to God? Well, <laughs> I, I am praying to God, but I don't define God. And, uh, and I'm, not, uh, I'm not committed to any particular definition. So it's like the Unitarian Church. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think uh, you know, the line is, uh, it's not important to believe in God. It's just important to believe that you're not God. <laughs> I, th I think I define God as uh, everything that's not me. Uh, everything around me, whether it's the people or the universe or uh, 
the environment, but it's it's that which is outside of me. And I think developing a spiritual life for me was as simple as understanding the difference between actions and outcomes. And understanding what is what's what I can do is pretty narrowly uh, um, set around you know my my the span of my arms. That's what I can actually do. And what what occurs is the interaction between the span of my arms and everything outside of it. And so when I when I'm praying, what I'm really trying to do, as opposed to having the world align itself to me and my desires, having me listen to the world and align my desires and me with it. What does it look like? Are you just sitting in a chair comfortably? I'm actually on my knees. Um, I'm actually, which is a you know posture of, of prayer that is typical for many and atypical for many. Um, but for me, it, it's a posture of humility, and it's to, it's that's where I want to start. And how long will you do this for every day? A few minutes, not 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 as long as, for example, you will meditate. Um, although it's very meditative for me, but what it does is it sets off my day, and I I'm absolutely committed to this. this is, my day starts this way, whether I feel like it or not. Oh, and to be clear, I don't feel like it much of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, this is not about you know constantly being enthusiastic. I also, I also don't feel like going to the gym all the time. Yeah. You no, know? and certainly with some of my workouts, I really don't feel like doing. I feel better when they're over, but I really don't feel like doing them. Um, so it, it's not quite as challenging as a workout, but there are times when I really don't feel like um, being meditative and and mindful, uh, but I do it every morning. And so what are you doing in your mind in those few minutes? I have a – I actually have a prayer practice. It's flexible, but it centers around you know, gratitude, thinking about other people, and setting an intention for the day. Can you, can you break those down? So it's gratitude, thinking about other people, and setting an intention for the day. Do you mind just to the extent you're comfortable getting a little bit more granular on those? No, I, yes, I will. Uh, gratitude. I, I list all the things in my life, uh, and I'm you know I'm actually sort of speaking softly. This is not all in my head. Um, I list all the things in the, my life for which I'm grateful, and they're a long list of things. You know, I've had plenty of material blessings and lots of emotional blessings, and I. I'm happily married um, for a long time. I have kids I love. I have loads of friends and colleagues I care about. Um, and, uh, and so I have, a, I have a long list of things to be grateful for, and I enumerate them. Uh, and then move on to you know asking for blessings for all the people I care about. And if there is someone I'm annoyed with or, or resentful of, pray for them as well. <laughs> it's nothing like uh, forgiveness to heal and that's part of my prayer practice. I don't usually carry around many resentments. And this, to my wife's great annoyance, there's almost no one on earth I don't like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if there is someone, that goes on the list because um, re- it releases. You know, it releases you and releases your, your commitment to being connected to negativity. And then I set an intention for the day, which is asking and listening for what the world has in store for me as opposed to what I have in store for the world, trying to be um, – Trying to give and not get. Trying to be. A, trying to enter my day with a posture of service, um, and and a focus on others, not just on myself. So I have one response to that, and then a, something. Another response to something you said earlier. Um, I was recently interviewing an expert in. He's a scientist trained at Harvard who did positive psychology at Harvard. This guy Sean Acor S H A W N last name A-C-H-O-R. He wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage. And he, one of the things he talks a lot about is gratitude. Turns out, 
his because I had been doing this thing where every time right as I'm going to bed, I just list all the things I'm grateful for. He said the one tweak he would put on that is to list three things that you're grateful for today. In other words, things that happened today because his argument is that teaches the brain to scan all the time for great things, which is a great way to overcome the negativity bias that's baked into us by evolution where we're always looking around for threats. I think that's a great piece of advice. I hadn't heard that before. So that's one thing. The other thing is, and I don't have my shtick together on this, so I'm just going to free associate for a second. When you talked about praying, God, thinking about God as everything that's outside of you, I like that. But I had one little kind of reservation that came up, which is that it may reinforce the idea that we're somehow separate from the universe. We have this primordial illusion of separ- of separation that we – it's us locked in our ego, locked behind our eyes, peering fretfully out at the world, uh, when in fact it's actually the borders are much more porous. And somebody said something recently that I can think of once in a while when I'm meditating, which is like you are nature. I mean – we're all a part of the same thing. We look at an animal and think that's nature, but you are nature, uh, and you are integrated into this whole thing. So it seems to me that God is just a touch more complex than what you were describing. But again, I just I, I don't have I'm not dogmatic about this. I just want to get your response. I think it's a great observation, and I think as I let go of try to let go of self in my morning prayer, the the there's a much greater likelihood that I'll feel at one with what's outside of me. Uh, and the starting point is is simply to say, this this shell is me, and all these burning desires inside are <laughs> me, and everything else is God, and then and I want to let go of what's inside me and listen to what's outside of me. And I think you're right, a, a higher expression that would then feel being integrated into what's outside. And I think it's a path that I hope to be on, but I'm probably not there yet. I'm not sure if one ever gets there, but I'm probably not there yet. I see it exactly as you do. Um, these are all, this is all an illusion and what we've created and pretty much everything that we do all day long is completely um, flies in the face of reality, which is that we enter this world with nothing and we will all leave with nothing. Oh, and by the way, we'll all leave. Yeah. Um, and and even that, something as simple as that, most people are in denial about. Most people, you know, look. I'm looking across the table at you now. Most people are like, yeah, I know you're going to die. Me? However, <laughs> no, I'm going to live forever. Um, you know, that is a fantasy that we we all um, can, can live in if we're not careful. And when you see people endlessly amassing power, money, or possessions, or spouses, <laughs> for example, or uh, anything, uh, I think it's 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 grasping at immortality, uh, as opposed to recognizing, you know, we all have an arc. It's a limited arc. Uh, we get to do this once. You know, what are we going to make of it? And so, when you say ageless, you are not referring to defying the laws of nature. Certainly not. And I have friends. I, you know, all you have to do is go to Silicon Valley, you can run to people who literally believe that they're going to live forever. You know, they, they talk about the the escape velocity, which is if you can every year, if you can push out your death by more than a year then you've reached escape velocity. You're never going to die. And, they, and you can actually find literature on this topic. Uh, Kurzweil, among other things, believes this, and he's still alive. Um, where, you know, medical science is con- is continuing to increase my lifespan every year for more than a year. You do the math. 
So I don't believe that. That's sort of like Zeno's paradox, um, which implies you can't move across the room because each movement that you need to make has to be uh, shorter than the movement you anticipate. But it turns out you, Zeno's paradox, not, notwithstanding, we can actually move across <laughs> the room. So in the, in the same way, you, you know, you can you can determine the medical science is making headway, and you can still get hit by a truck. Uh, and I figure we all will, one or, form or another. Or your self-driving car crash. Exactly. So that being said, you said an interesting thing to me recently. We were talking about the fact you're 61 now, and you actually think it's possible you can be in better shape at 71 than you are now. I do. But what if I'm wrong? I'll still be still have fun trying. And so it's uh, a little bit more aspirational than sort of dogmatic. It's certainly not dogmatic. First of all, all kinds of things can happen that are unexpected. I hope they don't, but they certainly could. And uh, you know, my my wife and I were kidding about dying, and she said, "See, the th- you really can't die now because uh, imagine how embarrassing it would be to publish a book <laughs> called Becoming Ageless and then to die." Uh, but of course, I could, and uh, I hope not to. Um, my point, though, is in the absence of, a, of an illness or an accident, um, there's it. I'm not an Olympic athlete. I'm not. Uh, I'm not training at that level, and none of my peers is training at that level. We're all really, really good, casual athletes who have day jobs and relationships and lives. And if you are training in that level, no, there's no limitation at 61, 71, or probably 81. Uh, uh, there reaches a point where you will likely be infirm. I'm hoping that'll be pretty close to the point at which I'm I'm no longer walking around on the face of the earth. Uh, and that's really the point. But m- no one should mistake my prescription for fitness as, yes, you can be, um, you know, you're a professional gymnast at, at 18 years old and you're going to be the same quality professional gymnast at 61. No, you're not going to be. What about one of the beefs that you, you and I were talking beforehand? You said that one of the the critiques you're hearing the, – the book has been very warmly received, but one of the critiques you hear is, oh, well, of course this guy has time uh, and energy and money to spend on his personal health because he's rich. And But I, I'm not rich, therefore I can't do it. How do you respond to that? Well, the first I respond to Sam, I'm incredibly grateful for all the resources I have, You know, incredibly grateful. And of course they allow me to do things that some people can't do. Uh, I would then also observe that without regard to our own limitations, we can make healthy choices. And, you know, you can decide, look, instead of watching television, I'm going to get exercise. And you can join a gym like Planet Fitness or Blink for less than $20 a month, which is, I'm guessing most people, not everyone, um, can divert $20 a month from other expenditures if fitness is a priority. And if and if you really can't, there's plenty of stuff you can do body weight and you can get outside and walk, or if you want, you can run. Uh, there are numerous activities that truly are free. Um, so both are true. I am blessed, and, I, and I'm grateful for those blessings. And it does allow me, for example, to join a bunch of different gyms and you know, train where I want and, and go on fun cycling trips. Um, and, uh, and, but it is not true that you can't eat healthily. Uh, the food that is most recommended is very inexpensive. Certainly, you know, as you do, you, you, know, you don't eat animal products. That's way less expensive food than a diet that includes, you know, bags and boxes and cakes and the like. You're you're eating, you know, whole grains and vegetables and fruit. It's about as inexpensive a diet as you can have. So let's make sure that we're not engaging in in limitations as excuses. That doesn't mean I don't have blessings. I do. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? Uh... Well, 
you've been pretty good about asking good questions, but I guess I would probably ask, okay, so given all of this, you know, what you do and the life you have and where you're at, you know, are you happy? Are you? Yeah, I'm really happy. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really blessed. I'm really happy. You've, you've, happy. Uh, I've seen you a little annoyed before. <laughs> I get irritated, but it's rare. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think when you would have seen me. Well, irritated. I just what's coming to mind is you. The four of us were sitting down for dinner one night. You were actually in pretty good mood, but you used an expression of somebody took my sweater. Oh, right. <laughs> Someone borrowed my sweater. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's my wife's expression. Which mean mm. mean basically it's a long story, but it basically is a, a way of saying people are kind of pushing the limits with me a little bit. Yeah, today. people are asking a little too much, and you sometimes feel like um, when you orient yourself to giving and not getting and. And then there are times when I think, and this is this is my fault. This is no one else's fault. But there are times when I can feel like, oh yeah, yeah, I I, I sort of meant I want to give and not get. But what I really want is to get. <laughs> Maybe you saw me in a moment where I wasn't at my most spiritually healthy. It was not uh, what I would call unhealthy. Yeah. It was a, we were going around the table talking yeah. about how we were. You, you think, let me just go back to this idea of uh, because I don't think we spent enough time on this this service piece. Because you take this really seriously. It's one of the first things we ever talked about. You have an open-door policy. You do a ton of coaching and mentoring for people. Were, were you doing that in your 30s and 40s too, or was it something that ha- started to happen later in life? No, I was always doing this. And this came from a place I, – I wanted to be in the entertainment business, and I had no connections whatsoever. My dad, my dad was a lawyer and not in the entertainment business. And so I, I tried to get connected to people and go see them, and I you know, wrote over the transom letters. This is days before email. And calls and no one would see me. And it was really hard to break in in the entertainment business. So I made it a, a commitment to myself when I got my first job, was, which was at Columbia Pictures, that if someone wanted to talk about business or anything, I'd always have an open door. So it's purely about career stuff and entertainment. And, uh, and I did. And because I had an open door, people came to see me, not because I had much to offer. I don't think I did. And I wasn't senior in the beginning, of course. I, I was a junior executive at Columbia Pictures. But I started um, talking to people. And so word got around um, at the business schools and at colleges that if you want to get into entertainment, this guy, no one else will see it, but this guy will. And so people came to see me. And then that turned into a coaching and mentoring practice that I developed over a long period of time. And that became really important to me because I looked at, you know, I looked at life and said, um, you know, what do I do for a living? I, I provide people with light entertainment. I'm proud of what I do. Don't get me wrong. And I love it. But I'm not curing cancer, and what I do will never be remembered after I'm gone. Uh, if, on the other hand, I can actually make a difference even in a small number of people's lives, but a material difference, that could really actually be meaningful. And um, I don't know how many people you know I've truly affected, but I know that I, I work with a couple hundred people a year, year in, year out. And uh, in certain instances, I, there have been you know really significant changes. How do you make time for that? Because I, I, every time we talk about this, I feel guilty. Because I do some <laughs> mentoring, but uh, ABC News has an official mentor program. So every year I get a new mentee and I stay in touch with the ones, the, the previous ones. But 100 people? I mean, I, I, I say no to a lot of stuff just because I need to protect time to actually get my work done. So how do you manage that? Well, I have to say no as well, uh, although I'm not really good at that. I'm, I'm, I've always been very efficient. Some people could call that impatient or, or crisp. Uh, and I will, people will occasionally say, well, you know, I went into have a meeting with a guy and it lasted like 15 minutes. So I, I, if, if something isn't productive, uh, from my point of view, 
I'm loath to engage in it. Uh, And that does free up time for things that I find more important. Uh, I also combine mentoring and coaching with things like exercise. So if someone wants to talk to me for an hour, you know, I say, look, you know, there's really only one place you're going to get me for an hour, and that's in the gym. Otherwise, it's going to be shorter than that. So uh, not everyone wants to go to the gym, but if someone does, they'll come to the gym with me. Because you do this thing, the the program, which is that's the program sort of came out of that, which is it's a group of people who train together in the mornings. Although I certainly am not standing around coaching people, uh, well, telling people that their form is is no good, and they're <laughs> saying it to me too, fortunately, because <laughs> mine isn't mine isn't all that good all the time. Um, but the, that did sort of come out of those those kind of relationships. But what I'm talking about typically is more one on one. So someone will want to sit down with me, and I'll say, look, you have a choice. You have a cup of coffee. Or we can go to the gym, and I never, you know, force someone to go exercise who isn't interested in that. Yeah, we've done it. Yeah, a bunch of times. Same thing. Yes. Before we go, let's just plug the book again. Where? Uh, what's it called? Uh, where can we get it? It's it's called Becoming Ageless, uh, and it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, pretty much anywhere that you can find books for sale. And um, and I'm hopeful that it'll help you. You know, become your best self and let go of the the limitations that you perceive are related to aging. And if you want to see Strauss schooling me in the gym, you can <laughs> Google it. I guess it'll probably be on YouTube. You said it's on. It's YouTube. on YouTube. Yeah, I think uh, if you Google um, uh, Zelnick, ageless, sixty-one-year-old, it comes up. Really? Yeah. Uh, maybe it wouldn't hurt to put Good Morning America in there because this was a Good Morning America. That'll piece. come up too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it was pretty embarrassing. Not for you. Um, great. Great job. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. 
All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.